this morning we're talking about the virgin conception of, of Jesus, what theologians call the incarnation, God becoming man. Um, and and it's, it's a really, really important doctrine to the faith that unfortunately we have not done a very good job of speaking about in the church and teaching Christians why it's important. I, I think most Christians look at the virgin conception of, of Jesus, what we call the virgin birth, and, and just kind of see it as like this miracle that we have to believe, and, and that's about the end of it, but that's not what's going on. It's actually vitally important for a couple of reasons, and God did it for a purpose, and we're going to talk about what that purpose was, what it means to us today, and why it's so important, because the virgin conception is not just a belief, but really is integral to the kind of power, heart-transforming power that Christians need to be active in a broken world. But I want to start this way. I love stories. I collect stories. Most preachers do. And, and one of my favorite stories comes from the corporate world. Some of you will be old enough to remember back in the early 80s, there were the soda wars, right? We call it pop here, but, you know, you go most other places in the country, it's soda. And there were the soda wars between Coke and Pepsi. You had kind of that, like, you know, third cousin RC down there somewhere, but it was really between, right, Coke and Pepsi. And Coca-Cola got together their top execs and hired this guy to lead them through a team exercise because they were losing a lot of market share to Pepsi. And they were going to try to figure out, what's the problem? What do we do? So, they have this team leader come in, and he's got a big whiteboard, and he puts a circle on the whiteboard. He says, one word. What we need in the middle of the circle is the one word that really says who Coke is. And after a lot of discussion and so forth and executives yelling at each other, they came up with the word taste, that Coca-Cola is all about taste. Well, if that's your starting point, then what are you going to do? You're going to work on taste. So, and this is what corporations do, they brought in a bunch of focus groups, right? They bring in people to do taste tests, and they begin to come up with different formulas. And by far, the one formula that every single focus group loved, swore was the greatest thing that they ever tasted, was what became New Coke. You remember New Coke? It sat on the shelves collecting dust for about a month because those focus groups obviously had no such thing as taste buds. It was awful. No one bought it. They spent millions of dollars in research and all this other kind of stuff. They did everything they thought right. They followed the process to a T, and New Coke was a disaster. So, a little while later, the top execs get back together, and now they have a new team leader leading them through the exercise because the one who came up with taste was probably looking for a new job. And this guy gets and they start arguing, and say, okay, what is it? Now, we need another word. What is the word? And some they finally settled on tradition. And tradition gave us Coca-Cola Classic, which is what we all still drink. Now, the point of that story is this. If you don't begin correctly, if your story starts off the wrong way, things are usually going to end badly. And the way the story kicks off in the New Testament with Matthew 1 is the virgin conception of Jesus Christ. 
And so if we get that wrong, we're going to get a lot else wrong too. And that's why it's so important. But as I said, the church has done a very poor job, and that a lot of that is on me, of teaching why this is important, why God did what he did. It's clear that the, the outside world, the secular world, does not understand the reason for the virgin conception because the church doesn't really understand it. We don't talk about it right. For example, in, in your bulletins, there's a quote from the New York Times, from a New York Times op-ed piece. It says, the faith in the virgin birth reflects the way American Christianity is becoming less intellectual and more mystical over time. That's the way the New York Times calls us all idiots. Now, go beyond the fact that it's a false choice to say something is less intellectual and mystical at the same time. That doesn't make any sense, actually. But you get beyond that, and it's just clear that the New York Times, whoever wrote this piece, is along with a group called the New Atheists, uh, and the New Atheists, if you don't know who they are, you should, because they have an incredible sphere of influence. When I was in seminary uh, in the late 1990s, and you asked people in America, how many of you are atheists, the numbers you got were like 3 to 5%. So, you know, roughly, you know, 95% of Americans believed in God. Today, just 15 years later, that number, number has jumped to 13 to 15%. And largely because of these new atheists led by folks like Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins, the late Christopher Hitchens, and Bill Maher. Uh, how many of you know who Bill Maher is? Yeah. Um, whether you are conservative, moderate, liberal, or apathetic, Bill Maher is, I guess the nuanced term would be, a jerk, a loudmouth jerk. And Bill Maher, I watch his show every once in a while. It sends my blood pressure up, but I watch it. And Maher loves to talk about religion and how stupid religious people are. And if you've seen his documentary, Religulous, not that I recommend it, he goes out and he tries to debunk faith in God, especially faith in Christianity. And because he's such a towering intellect and so brave, the people he decides to debate on the issue is a truck stop pastor and a tour guide leader at a Christian theme park. I kid you not. He turned down the invitation to talk to people like N.T. Wright, a New Testament professor from Oxford, because he would have gotten his behind whip. Instead, Marr and the New Atheist will say things like, look, your Bible's silly. It's filled with all kinds of unscientific notions, including this idea that anybody can get pregnant as a virgin. He says, clearly, this is what's called a myth. Now, you know what a myth is? A myth is essentially a story people make up to explain what they do not understand. That's a myth. And they say, look, there are all these ancient sources. If you go back and look at classic literature, there is all kinds of stories about, you know, these births of gods. There's one story of a god springing out of a rock spontaneously. There's stories of gods coming down from heaven and producing kind of demigods. You know, this thing's happening. The problem with that is that if you read the New Testament and then you read those accounts, and I've read them, they don't match. They're not even close. 
And first of all, a lot of the times, if you listen to these people say, ah, the virgin conception is like other myths, actually a lot of those myths they compare it to actually came after Christianity. So if anything, they're borrowing from Christianity, not vice versa. A lot of the Greek myths and so forth about, you know, God's, you know, producing children are nothing like what happens in Matthew and Luke. In, you know, in the, in, in the Greek mythology, Zeus looks down, sees a hot babe, and says, all right, put on the Al Green, pour some Cavassier, here I come. Now, that ain't anything like what's going on in Matthew, Right? So we need to understand this, and we need to start here. If you've got your bulletins, you want to follow along. The virgin conception is not a myth. This was not something the gospel writers made up. There is no reason for them to have made this up. Now, if you're writing in the, if you're Matthew, you're Luke, you're writing in the first century, you're trying to put together a book to help expand the Christian church, explain the faith to those looking at the Christian religion, those considering the Christian religion, those who are new Christians, the last thing you do is borrow from pagan mythology. And the reason you don't do that is because Jews hated pagan mythology, and the easiest person to evangelize in the earliest church were Jews. The early church was largely Jewish. And that makes sense. They've been waiting for the Messiah. They knew the Old Testament. They were the low-hanging fruit. So to just create some kind of myth from other religions that Jews detested just makes no sense. It's not a myth. It doesn't read like a myth. But it's not just a miracle, not just a miracle in this sense. It is not, God does not do miracles just to be like, look what I can do. You can't do it. Look what I can do. That is not why God does miracles. If you read your Bible closely, you will see that when God performs a miracle, it is always to demonstrate who he is and what he wants done in the world. It always reflects that. When Jesus goes around kicking out demons and healing people, he says the kingdom of God is near. What is he saying? He's saying this is what the reign of God really looks like. There are no sickness, no death, wholeness. This is what happens when the king reigns. This is what happens when Jesus will return and throw sickness and death and everything else into Hades where it belongs. The gospel writer John says, calls miracles signs. Signs are something that point to something else. It's not just a miracle. Let's take a look at Matthew and let's talk about it. Matthew 1, 18 through 25. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Now, we're getting ready to go into Christmas. Um, Mary was roughly probably 12 or 13 years old. Probably 12 is usually when a young girl was pledged to be married. Joseph may have been as young as 16. He may have been older. We're not sure because we know that by the time Jesus is, is grown, Joseph has died. Throw it back up. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, the Greek there does not say, as Muslims and Mormons maintain, that Mary somehow had sexual relations with God. That is not what the text says. The Bible is very clear that, in fact, every conception, whether it's physical or not, 
God is the one who reaches into the womb and constructs a human being. You are all the handiwork of God himself. And in this place, what has happened is, absent physical contact, Jesus, the Holy Spirit has gone in and created Jesus in the womb, in the same way God creates other beings, just without the sexual activity between the man and the woman. And we'll talk about why that is here in a minute. Let's go through it again. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, that quietly is important. The law said that if a young woman was pledged to a man, in the eyes of God, they were already married and they were to be faithful to each other. If they had sexual relations outside of that, that is considered adultery. Adultery was punishable by death. So Joseph could have dragged Mary to the elders and said, she's pregnant, I haven't touched her, we're pledged to be married, take care of her. And people start picking up rocks. But he wanted to divorce her quietly, which means he did not want any harm to come to him. He's a compassionate man. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you give him to the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. In fact, the name Jesus in Aramaic and Hebrew is Yahshua, Joshua, but that name means God is salvation. Keep going. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, and he's referring to Isaiah 7. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, that does not mean that they screwed up and, they, and that his name was Jesus Emmanuel Christ. Okay? It was not his middle name. That, that's not how that worked. By the way, Christ is a title, not a name. All right, you didn't go to like Bethlehem or Nazareth looking for Joseph Christ and Mary Christ. That's not what was going on. That's a title, not a name. They called him Emmanuel because that's what he would do. He would be God with us. And what I'm going to argue this morning is that's incredibly powerful and an important notion. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, which is always wise advice, and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Now, we are not the first ones to wrestle with that. Um, the early church wrestled with why this was necessary. What was the point? Because the early church knew, though I think we struggle with this more than they did, the early church knew that sex between a man and a woman married in the eyes of God is not in any way, shape, or form sinful. It's not. Long before Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, God commanded them to do what? Multiply, fill the earth, right? Well, how do you think they were going to do that? Wasn't anybody around to adopt? They weren't growing kids in the garden. Right? Adam and Eve had sex, had kids through that, and God blessed that. So there's nothing sinful about sexual relations. 
The early church understood that. That's not what's going on here. But what Jews did believe was this. They believed that there is this thing called inherited sin, that we inherit a sinful nature. And they believed it was passed through the Father. Women are going, (laughs) no joke. Jews believe sinful nature was passed through the Father. And what was important for God to do was to create somebody without inherited sin, but also to be fully human. Why? Well, first and foremost, this is necessary for salvation. The virgin conception is absolutely necessary for salvation. Now, there's more to it, but this is important. The reason Jesus Christ came to earth, and there's lots of reasons, but the really kind of central reason, because it's where most of us meet Jesus as sinners, is this. He came to save us, as Matthew says, from our sins. Now, what that means is Jesus goes to the cross, and on the cross takes the punishment for the sins of all people who place their faith in him. Now, when I say place their faith in in him. I'm not just talking about belief that he is the Christ, the Son of God. Even the demons believe that. Faith, the Greek word, means belief, but it also means trust in and loyalty to. So faith is bigger than just belief. It's I trust in you. I trust that you are the Christ. I will trust in you for salvation. I will be loyal to you in my daily life. That's faith. And those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, their sins are all paid for. I was discussing this um, this morning. One of the reasons I ran in here is I was, I was talking to someone out there, and, and you know, I was telling them, God is not just a God of love, though he is. He is also a God of justice. And justice demands that wrongs be dealt with. So what the Bible teaches is you have a choice. Your sins, which are rebellion against God, which is an injustice against God and each other, have to be dealt with. You either pay them yourself or Jesus pays them for you. Now, the only way this could be done is through a perfect sacrifice. The only way that Jesus could take our sins upon himself would be a perfect sacrifice, or otherwise, if he had sinned, he would only be paying the penalty for his own sins. He had to be perfect, which means he could not have inherited sin. But he also had to be man because God cannot die. So he had to be perfect, and he had to be human. He had to be God, and he had to have flesh. He had to have And how do you do that? You have the Holy Spirit come, circumvent sinful nature, and create a baby that is both God and man. To live, to be tempted on our behalf, to die on our behalf. So the virgin conception is necessary for salvation. But there's more to it than that. The virgin conception is also the only way to truly convey God's loving empathy. By empathy, I mean to feel for someone else, to put yourself in their shoes, which is literally what Jesus does. 
let's back up a little bit. Let's back up before time. Want to? Why not? You've had coffee. Before time existed, and there was actually a time before time, if Einstein was correct, we know that there was actually a time before time, as mind-boggling as that is. There was a period in which the only thing that existed was the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And all three existed eternally. Now, you have this all three perfect beings. They're one, they're three. That's weird enough. They're outside of time. I don't, I don't know how three perfect beings communicate with each other. What do you say when all three of you know everything? I don't know how that goes down. But they loved each other and they had perfect, absolute harmony with each other. You know what that means? It means they didn't need us. They didn't need any of us. Our creation was completely out of love, not need. Not because they were bored, not because they were lonely. Because, let's face it, they knew what we would do. And I can't speak for you, but speaking for myself, I'm pretty sure that 99.9% .9 of the time, God is looking at me going, oh my gosh, really? Can't you just drive around New Boston, Matt, really? I'm a pain in the butt. I'm selfish. And so God did not create me because I can give him anything. He owns everything. I can't give God anything. I cause God more heartache than anything else. And yet he chose to create me anyway. He chose to create you. And he could have left it there. He said, look, I gave you, I'm going to give you life. You go live it. Right? Rock and roll all night, party every day. See ya. He didn't do that. In grace upon grace, he said, I will give you a way to, of salvation, save you from eternal punishment, have an eternity with me, perfect eternity. Grace upon grace. But in grace upon grace upon grace, he goes beyond that. I mean, Jesus Christ, if he just wanted to save us from our sins, I guess it's theoretically possible that he could have just put on flesh in heaven, dropped down and said, I'm here, give me a cross. Gone up the cross, got nailed, done, okay, sins are paid for, see ya. He didn't do that. What the Bible teaches is in grace upon grace upon grace, Jesus steps down from his throne. This eternal being goes and not only becomes a man, not only becomes a Jewish peasant, becomes an embryo, becomes an unborn child in the womb, goes through birth, goes through childhood, you know how mind-boggling that is? Now, why is that important for us? When we pray to Jesus Christ, we pray to a God who has been there, done that, from the very beginning. 
And the reason it's so important from the very beginning, I don't know how many of you have done any kind of counseling or have reflected back on your life. Do you know most of our attitudes, habits, and traumas stem from childhood? How many of us have been formed or scarred from childhood? And Jesus has been there. He's gone through that. So that when we pray to him, we know from womb to tomb, he's faced it all. Absolutely faced it all. He didn't have to. I don't see any reason why he had to. Other than to say, to be able to say, not only do I love you, but I love you so much, I will go through everything you go through so that when you turn to me, you know you speak to someone who has suffered what you have suffered, who has faced what you have faced. You gonna tell me that's not important? Back 20 years ago now, man, I'm getting old. 20 years ago, I went through a real personal crisis. It should have been the highlight of my life. I had just won a congressional campaign. I was on my way to Washington, D.C. Professionally, I had everything I wanted. I was kind of putting things in place to run for public office myself. Everything was coming together, except my personal life was a mess. And I was engaged at the time, and the engagement fell apart. Looking back, I can't imagine why getting engaged to someone and then disappearing for nine months on a congressional campaign would have any kind of impact at all. Women, go figure. And I went through that, and it was really, really tough. And when I would come home from Washington, D.C., and we had a congressional office downtown, I still don't know how he knew this, but there's an elected official here in town that will remain nameless, to, and, but he used to come see me. If he knew I was in town, he'd come, he'd bring a cup of coffee, and he'd sit down on my desk, he'd close the door, he'd say, how you doing? He had gone through a painful divorce just a few years before. I knew he was still reeling from heartbreak. I was heartbroken. Knowing that he knew what I felt and was there for me made a huge difference in my life. That kind of loving sacrifice makes a huge difference, does it not? The virgin conception of Jesus was necessary for salvation, but also to establish this loving relationship, and this loving relationship, that kind of loving relationship empowers people. Love, empathetic, sacrificial love may be the most powerful thing in the world, is it not? It will drive you crazy, it will change your heart, it will melt you, it will just absolutely change you. And sometimes the best way. I, um, I don't watch, tend to watch chick flicks. Um, the only Sandra Bullock movie I've seen in the last 10 years is the one where she was floating around in space. But I, I collect kind of chick flick type stories because I'm a preacher who collects stories. And I heard this one a few years ago. There was a, a young man, young woman, this is back in the early 90s, and, and they met in college. He was a senior, she was a junior. 
They fell in love. He got a Rhodes Scholarship, I believe it was, to go to Oxford and, and, and study for a year or two, and, and uh, she had to stay and finish college, but they got engaged. He gave her a ring. He scrimped and saved. He gave her a ring, said, I love you. Will you marry me? Got down on his knees, did the whole thing. She said yes, and they knew they wouldn't see each other for at least a year. This is going to be very difficult for those of you under 30 who don't really remember the early 90s or the 80s. There was a time when there were no cell phones or internet. We had to do this thing called a landline or wrote these things called letters. And that's how you communicated. And so they knew they wouldn't see each other. There's no Skype. There's no going on. And he's going to England. She's staying there to finish school. They'd see each other in a year. Between that, it would be the occasional expensive phone call. And there would be letters, lots of letters. A few weeks after he left, she walked out in the street and was hit by a car. When she woke up in the hospital, the first thing she did, of course, was she looked down and she saw, do I, do, can I move? She thought, yeah, I can. Hands arms, legs, move my feet, okay, good. She looked up at her parents and she tried to talk and she realized she had no voice. That one of the complications from the wreck and the surgery was she would never be able to speak again. Quickly it hit her that this was going to destroy her relationship, her engagement because her fiancé had fallen in love with her because they would sit and talk all night. He had primarily fallen in love with her mind, and they just loved to talk and talk and talk and talk. And she thought, this is over. It's ended. She took the ring off of her finger, put it in an envelope, put it in a desk drawer. She began to learn sign language, not so much to, to live, she thought at that point, without him without her voice, that she would just really exist more than live. The phone would ring. She suspected it was him, but she wouldn't answer. She was too afraid of what he would say. He was she was too afraid that he would finally say, you know, I'll be there for you, but of course, we're done. A year went by, and one day, in, back in the hospital, she woke up, and there he was. And the first thing he did was sign to her, I love you. Though he'd been studying at Oxford, which is like studying at Harvard or Yale, you study all the time, 16-hour days, six, seven days a week. He had taken the few spare moments he had to learn sign language so that when he returned to the love of his life, they could talk and talk and talk and talk and he took the ring from the envelope and he put it back on her finger now you hear a story like that of that kind of sacrificial love and you can't help but to be moved do you know how much more Jesus sacrificed for us to step down off a throne where he had known from all eternity nothing but perfect love and fellowship and to be literally become an embryo, to, to become an unborn child, to become a baby, to become a toddler, to go through all of that. 
just to be able to reach out his scarred hand and take ours and say, I'm with you. That's not just a doctrine, that's power. If you take that into your heart, that's really power because the God you are praying to when you pray is not someone just sitting on a throne looking down on you being like, oh, are you kidding me? He's a God who has been there and faced everything you have faced from conception to death. Everything. He's been there. And he did it to love you. That's power. If you can get your mind wrapped around that, if you can start praying to that, if, you can get when, if your heart is there when you pray to Jesus Christ, it will change your heart. If your heart is changed, it will change your life. And if you change your life, you can change the world. John Wesley knew this. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church. Oh, he didn't want to found the Methodist Church. He never considered himself a Methodist, actually. He considered himself a good Anglican. He was just trying to reform the Church of England. But he knew this. He talked about the virgin conception a lot and what that meant. And that drove him all over the world to preach and preach and preach and preach and preach and preach, do nothing to live on crumbs if he had to. And John Wesley's last words were this, the best of all, God is with us. It changed him can change you. He died with that truth on his lips, but if you live with that truth in your heart, it can change everything. Absolutely everything. It's power. And we need that power. Look, I'm proud of this church. This church does a lot. I am so proud of Single Parents Fair. I am so proud of what we're doing in Uganda. I am so proud of what we're doing with Reefs Across America and, 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 and you know, with Angel Tree and everything that we do. I run into people all the time. When I go to the Life Center, I have people walk up to me and say, you know, I'm not sure what I believe, but I'm sure glad your church is there. I'm proud of this church. And please don't take this as, as, as a reprimand when I say, but we can do more. We can do more. And here's how you can give more. First and foremost, we still need to raise the money to do the baby rescue mission in Uganda. We need to raise that money. I'm, my mom doesn't know it yet. Uh, mom and dad are roughing it in Hawaii this week. But mom, dad took her there for her birthday, and she's got a birthday this week. And what she doesn't know is I've bought an ad in a, in a circular in the Daily Times that will be talking about the, with her picture on it, talking about the Alice Rawlings baby rescue mission in Uganda. And I hope that this community rallies around it, prays and gives. How many of you know what International Justice Mission is? Only a few of you. International Justice Mission is a Christian ministry out of Washington, D.C., and they are dedicated to stopping sex trafficking, worldwide slavery, and the violence that afflicts those who are poor. Do you know that today there are 30 million people in slavery across the world? 30 million slaves in the world today. 26% of that are children. India has an approximate 13 to 14 and a half million slaves today. You know how they do it? One of the ways they do it? 
Business people will go up to a poor family and offer to make a loan, sometimes as little as $20. And they give that person a loan, and then they charge such exorbitant interest that the family cannot pay it back. And so they take the entire family into slavery. The sex, sex trait, which affects as many as 2 million children, is huge business, especially in South and Southeast Asia. And what IJM does is they go into these countries, and the sex trade, by the way, is here in, this, in the United States as well. They go in and they identify who is doing this, and they work with local authorities to put a stop to it, to prosecute those who are doing it. And then they identify the victims, and they pull the victims out, and they get them the care they need to help heal them physically, psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually. Do you know what it costs to rescue one person from slavery, according to IJM? $4,500. The cost of a decent used car is what it takes to get one person out of slavery today. I happen to think that's a worthwhile goal of the church, don't you? Um, I, I was proud that um, a person that I've helped to disciple over the last few years stepped up. You may have seen the article in the Daily Times, and Megan Keaton, who was out there somewhere, I don't know where she is, but anyway, she is raising money for IJM through a thing they call Dress Simber. Dress Simber is where women wear a different dress every day, and then they get sponsors to help pay for it. I think she's trying to raise about $1,100. I think she's raised a couple hundred dollars so far. The, if you look at your the bulletin there, the web address where you can go donate money to Dress Simber is, is right there. And I would encourage you to do that. $5, $10, $25, $50, $1,100 is not a lot. I, I personally hope and pray she raises $4,500. It'd be a cool thing to rescue one person out of slavery for Christmas, wouldn't it? Now, if you're sitting there going, all right, look, dude, I, whatever, I don't have money, so what am I going to do? Well, there are a couple things you can do. One is this. I believe on December 19th will be the next Ambassadors for Christ ministry. Ambassadors of Christ led by Steve and Tiffany Johnson who were here, if you remember, a few months ago talking about this. They reach out to those on the east end and on our own east end of Portsmouth. There is still a lot of prostitution out there. And so they reach out to them, try to get them off the streets and care for them. And that's something you can volunteer to help do. And I believe Friday, December 19th is the next time they will do it. Also, Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays at the Salvation Army. We have folks here who lead a, a, a ministry called um, Father's Table where they feed the homeless and what's called the food insecure. If you know what the food insecure is, that's people who just can't afford three meals a day. And you can go help serve. You can go help just wash dishes. And if you don't, can't do any of that, it's like, like, I can't get off work. I haven't got money. Here's what we got. I'm going to ask you to do one thing before you leave today. Just one. Uh, International Justice Mission sent us a bunch of postcards this week. And what we're going to have is, as you walk out that table where you usually pick up like the CDs, the sermons, and stuff like that, there are going to be postcards out there. And what I need you to do is sign the postcard. 
The postcards go to elected officials. And basically what it says, all it says, it's not, IJM is not left, right, or center. They're not Republican or Democrat, none of that. It just sends to one of your elected officials, senator or congressman, says, hey, look, we're Christians. We're concerned about modern slavery and violence, and we want you to be concerned as well. We want you to help IJM work with local government officials in foreign countries to put a stop to this. And that's all it says. And I need you to know that when you sign that postcard, and I would encourage you, to, IJM told me to have them sent to Senator Sherrod Brown. I called an audible last night and said, nope, we need to send them to Rob Portman because Rob Portman comes up for re-election next. And I don't know if you've noticed this about politicians, but those who are coming up for re-election tend to pay more attention to the mail. That's how that works. So just fill it out to Senator Portman. If you're from Ohio, if you're from Kentucky, send it to you know, Senator Paul or whatever and just say, hey, look, we're concerned about this. Sign your names. And do not, you, don't, you don't have to mail it. All you do is fill it out and hand it back to whoever's there at the back table. There'll be a couple people back there. We'll mail it for you. We'll take care of it. Is that too much to ask? Because all I'm saying is this. If God is willing to sacrifice that much to love us, how much more should we sacrifice to show we love him? Especially at a time of year where we're celebrating the fact that he left his throne for us. And he left his throne for us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much, the grace upon grace upon grace. Creating us was grace. We caused you almost nothing but irritation. And yet, out of love, you made us. In grace, you came to save us from our sins. You left your throne to suffer more than anyone has ever suffered when you were torn apart on the cross to take the punishment for our sins. But then in grace upon grace upon grace, you, have, you took on flesh to face every single temptation, to face every single irritation, to face every single pain and every single thing that drags us down, all the things that depress us, all the things that create anxiety, all the things that, that create fear in us. You have been there. So we come to pray to you we come and we put our hands in yours in prayer. We put our hands in your hands that are scarred and rough and have been there and done that. And we can pray and talk to someone who knows us, truly knows us, and has felt what we feel. And you did that all out of love. May we show you love in return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.